How many of you in here have seen the movie The Three Amigos? Raise your hand if you've seen it. It's classic, right? Well, for those of you, it's a comedy starring Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short. And uh, in this movie, they play three down-and-out, out-of-work, silent movie actors known as The Three Amigos. And in the movie, they are accidentally drawn to the Mexican city, the Mexican village of Santa Poco, which is being harassed by a gang of outlaws. Well, the reason the Amigos make this trip to Santa Poco is because they thought they were being called upon to put on a show for the people of the village. And they thought they were going to be working with the infamous, those of y'all that have seen the movie know, that, know this, the, the, it's really the infamous, but they thought it was famous, El Guapo. They thought they were going to be working with this famous Mexican actor. Well, after they arrive, they soon realize that El Guapo is not an actor at all. He is an evil tyrant who has terrorized the, the people of Santa Poco for some time. Well, after learning of the city, hiring these three amigos, El Guapo is angered by this and seeks revenge by taking the mayor's beautiful daughter, Carmen, to be his wife. Well, toward the end of the movie, the three amigos decide to go and rescue Carmen from El Guapo, and they do that, and they race back to the village of Santa Poco to wait for El Guapo and his gang to return for a final showdown. Check out this clip here from the movie. El Guapo is on his way. Someday the people of this village will have to face El Guapo. We might as well do it now. In a way, all of us have an El Guapo to face someday. For some, shyness might be their El Guapo. For others, a lack of education might be their El Guapo. For us, El Guapo is a big dangerous guy who wants to kill us. But as sure as my name is Lucky Day, the people of Santa Poco can conquer their own personal El Guapo, who also happens to be the actual El Guapo. This is not a town of weaklings. You can turn your skills against El Guapo. What is it that this town really does well? We can sew. There you go, you can sew. Ah. If only we had known this earlier. Ned, Dusty. Sewing. Remember our film, Amigos, Amigos, Amigos? Yes. Remember what we did in that movie? Gee, do you think it could work? It's got to work. <laughs>
some good drink? Now, I know this is a, a bit of an extreme and, and fictional example, but the truth of the matter is, at times, the most unlikely of people use the most unusual means possible to protect and to preserve others. The women from the village of Santapoco use their gift of sewing to defeat El Guapo. And I'm sure many of you in here have, have real stories of unlikely people who have used unusual means to achieve certain tasks. And we don't have to look very far at all for these examples, do we? We have these examples given to us all throughout the Bible. And in our passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to repeat this theme that's found throughout the Bible of God using unlikely people and unusual means to bring about saving faith. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. As we've already discussed already, the city of Corinth was like the, the New York City of the first century. It was a prosperous and progressive city, a city that idolized rich and successful and good-looking and influential people. And, and the Christians at Corinth, though they had been called out of this city and set apart for the purposes of God, over time they began to be influenced once again by the values of the people in this godless city. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that there were some in the church who were letting their earthly desires for power and success and influence affect their behavior within the church. Well, well Paul continues chapter 2 the way he ends chapter 1 by telling them that, that though the, the people of Corinth, though they valued the proud and the impressive and the powerful and the well-educated, he told them God delights in calling out and using the humble and the weak and the lowly. He's chosen to use those who are seemingly weak and foolish by the world standards, those who are nothing to write home about, those who are unimpressive and unpopular to accomplish His purposes. And one of the main reasons God does this is to make His name great so that we will look to Him and so that we will boast in Him and Him alone. In fact, in this passage of Scripture, Paul puts himself forth as an example of this, to make this point. He shows us what true humility is by basically telling the Christians at Corinth, hey, there's nothing I bring to the table but Christ. There's nothing impressive about me. There is no message that I have to give you or anybody else that's beneficial other than His message. And there were people in the world during this time, many who viewed Paul as foolish. They did. They thought Paul was a fool. And they thought his message was foolish. And Paul realized that. And he, he basically says, by the world standards, I may be a fool, but I want you to know something. I am a fool for Christ. 
And that's what Paul's basically saying here to us. He calls for us to follow his example. He basically says the world may think the messenger and the message of Christ is foolish, but you be willing to be a fool for Christ. So let's look at this passage this morning. Let's look to Paul's example and his teachings on how to be just that, a fool for Christ. First notice that Paul says, to be a fool for Christ, number one, we have to value God's message over outward appearances and human wisdom. We live in a world where image is everything, right? Don't believe me, just walk down the magazine aisles at Walmart. You don't see people like me on the front cover, do you? And the reason why is because our world puts a lot of stock into outward appearance and and style. Let me ask you, do you think the people who frequent the front cover of GQ magazine and Vanity Fair are there ultimately on the cover because they're people of substance? Now, I'm not saying that they couldn't be people of substance, but is that what landed them on the front cover? No. They ultimately got to where they are on that that cover because they are outwardly impressive. And we value this. And we don't see this just in Hollywood, do we? We see this in Christian circles as well. We do. Some of the most well-known preachers that you see at times on TV are not necessarily the ones who, who are the ones with the most substance, the most doctrinally sound. I would argue that that there are some, not all, but some of them that have very little substance at all to their message. Then why are they on TV? Why are they so popular? A lot of the time, it's either that they look good on camera. Some of them don't, I know. Some of them do. Or they're gifted communicators. I've heard people say before about certain individuals, man, I love the way so-and-so preaches. And, and, you know, I'll listen to to the message. And I'll think to myself, you know, they're a good communicator and they connect with the audience, but they're not really saying anything of substance biblically. There's many who are gifted in this way. They're gifted communicators and they may be wise by the world's standards, but they're not saying anything of substance biblically. But here's the thing, many are drawn to these individuals, not by the content of their message, not because of the content of their message, but but because of the way it's presented. Not with what's being said, but how it's said. And oftentimes we buy into this. We put a lot of stock into outward appearance and style and human wisdom. And the people of Corinth were doing the same thing. At this time, If a Greek speaker entering a city, they looked impressive and they used ginormous words showing off how educated they are and if they were wise by the world's standards and had a style that showcased their brilliance and their wisdom and their charm and their wit, great crowds would flock to these guys. And we can can relate today, can't we? Because this happens today. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul gives you and me some great news. 
he tells us that these are not the kind of characteristics that God is looking for in his representatives. He's not. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or human wisdom. Now here's the thing. Though we're told elsewhere in Scripture that, that Paul was not the, the most gifted of, of, uh, in, in the way of public speaking, he was highly educated. He was. He could have showcased his brilliance, couldn't he have? He was a well-educated rabbi. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew Aramaic, and I guarantee you that he could hold his own in an argument. But he said... He held back from showcasing these things. Why? Get this. Because Paul knew lofty speech and human wisdom does not save. God does through his gospel. Let's be honest. We, we need to hear this, don't we? You know what the largest section of books in any secular bookstore is? Self-help. Self-help books, they're flying off the shelves. Books with titles like 10 Practical Steps to Becoming a Better You. Those are the kind of books we see in, in the store windows and, and the kind of books that are tops on Oprah's book lists. People are buying into these things, thinking that, that if I know and apply these principles, this will be the answer to all my problems. Well, there's a reason why Paul does not take this approach in teaching and preaching. And the reason why is because, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, human wisdom falls short in the most crucial of ways. It does not lead us to the, a right relationship with the living God. It doesn't. Only the gospel does that. Now, no, Paul's not speaking here. He's not anti-intellectual. He's not speaking against study and, and knowing what we believe. There's some who take this stance. They say, I'm not going to fool with any of that. John 3, 16 is all I need to know. And I'm just going to share that. Or they've memorized the back of a gospel track. I'm just going to present that and God will bless it and he'll be good with that. Honestly, I think for the most part, that kind of approach is just Laziness and a lack of desire for the things of God. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He says our role as believers and his role is to communicate the testimony of God. Now, what's another word for the testimony of God? The Bible, right? The scriptures. So we need to know the word of God so that we can effectively communicate it. This involves reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating upon it so that we can effectively communicate it to others. What Paul is speaking against here, what he's warning the Corinthians about is putting our own two cents in, adding to the message, putting our own spin on the testimony of God, thinking if I add this here or if I take this away there, a person will be more likely to respond. Listen when I tell you this. You've got to get this. This is so key. God 
does not call us to be his PR person. He calls us to be his witnesses. Not his PR person, just his witnesses. He doesn't need us to dress up this message and put our own spin on it and add elements to it or take elements away from it to make it more appealing. He just wants us to know his word and communicate it effectively to others. This should encourage us this morning. Should. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, how could God use me? I mean, I'm not that popular. I'm not a gifted speaker. I'm not that educated. I don't have a huge vocabulary. Hey, that's fine. That's not what saves. That's not what brings sinners to repentance. That's not what makes people right with God. God brings change when His Word is learned by His people and communicated effectively. Jesus said in Acts 1-8, you are to be my witnesses. And that's a great word to us because that's something we all can be, right? As believers. Now, if He said, go out and be funny in my name, that would exclude some of us, right? Because some of us aren't that funny, let's be honest. If he said, I want you to go out and draw people to me with your looks and your intellect, that would leave many of us out. No, he gives us an assignment that we all can do. He says, be my witnesses. Go spread about me. Grow in your knowledge of me through my word and communicate that effectively to others. It's what we all can do. Second way to be a fool. For Christ, number two. Center your attention upon one core truth rather than a number of marginal issues. Look at verse 2. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We live what's in what's called the information age, don't we? We have instant information in front of us all the times on our computer and our smartphones. For example, on my homepage, on my computer, I have the weather, the news, my email, my Facebook, sports, my to-do list. I mean, all on one page. I can know what time it is, what the weather is, what's going on in Washington, what's going on with the Cowboys, what's going on with the Longhorns, who's messaged me on Facebook, what I have next to do on my to-do list, and who's emailed me by looking at one page. It's amazing, isn't it? We have instant access to all sorts of information. We have people today reporting the news through Facebook and Twitter faster and quicker than the news stations are. And we love it, don't we? Because we love to be in the know. We do. We have several reasons for this. One, being in the know is a way for us to socialize with one another, isn't it? You ever been cut out of a conversation because you were not on the, on the up and up? You, you weren't up to date with uh, the, the topic being discussed? You ever have that happen? We don't like that, do we? So what do we do? We go home. And we get all caught up with the topic so we can join the conversation. Because we, we like to be in the know in this way. And if we're honest, 
Another reason why we like to be in the know is because it gives us a sense of superiority and elitism. It does. You ever said to someone before, you're talking about a topic and somebody asks about it and you're like, you, you don't know about this? What rock have you been living under? You know? We've snubbed our noses at people before and had our noses snubbed at us because we weren't up on the latest topic of discussion. And this was very much the way it was in Corinth in the first century. At this time in this city, the citizens were often visited by these traveling philosophers and orators, these gifted speakers, and they would come and they would speak about all sorts of subjects and all sorts of issues and people would come from all around to to hear about these ty- hear these types of messages. And this style and this message of these philosophers, they were influencing leaders within the church at Corinth. And, and many of them were adopting these styles and applying them to the way they, they, they taught and preached the Word of God. And Paul addresses that here in verse 2. And, and once again, this is a message we need to hear, right? Because unfortunately, there, there are many leaders in, in churches today who are doing just that. They're letting current events, topical things going on in the world drive what they preach week in and week out instead of letting the Word of God drive what is being preached and taught. There are some who focus primarily on politics or the situation in the Middle East or they, they include sports or, or talk about pop culture icons and these topics They'll draw a crowd, won't they? Because we like to hear about these things. We like to hear them discussed. We like to to talk about these current events and issues. Well, look at the advice that Paul gives here again to these leaders in verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul reminds them here of the 18 months when he was with them and and what he did while he was with them and what he taught. And once again, he puts himself in contrast to these philosophers that were admired by the people of Corinth. He said, when I was with you, my central concern was on Christ and Him crucified. And he's reminding them here of this so they will follow his example and do the same thing. Once again, Paul gets himself out of the picture. When when he spoke, his focus was not upon impressing people with his knowledge of current events. It was not upon impressing people with his style and his human wisdom. His central concern, his central emphasis was the message of the cross. Now, Paul doesn't mean every day he preached the same sermon of Jesus' crucifixion, like we find in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is every one of his messages was deliberately tied to the cross. It was, it, he could bring any message back to the cross, and he did. He was always bringing his messages back to Christ and the cross because he saw the scriptures as being all about Christ 
and all the writings of Scripture pointing toward or pointing back to the cross. And if Paul's sole focus was on the cross, if he had this single-minded focus on the cross, if that was good enough for Paul in ministry, it should be good enough for us. Let me explain why. Because when we center our lives and our message and our ministry upon the cross, we have all we need, number one, to be saved, but number two, to grow in godliness and to become all of what God wants us to be. Think about this with me. Every struggle that we have in life, behind every difficulty in our life, you can find a fundamental failure to understand the gospel in some way. It's true. Think about pride. Why do we struggle with pride? Because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. How so? Well, one of the truths the gospel drives home for us is that we're sinners, deserving God's wrath. Apart from God, we stand unclean and condemned. We all sin against God on a daily basis. We are seriously flawed. So with that in mind, let me ask you this question. What's to boast about by ourselves? What is there to brag about without God? What's to be proud of? Everything significant about you and about me has been given to us by God. Therefore, He deserves all the praise. We should boast in nothing but Him. So the better we understand and embrace the truth of the gospel, the less we'll struggle with pride. It's true. In a similar way, struggles with honesty, greed, lust, Selfless, selfishness, and all of these things, they, they can be traced at their root to a misunderstanding of the gospel. You want to know what's wrong with our world? Study the gospel. You want to know how to improve upon your marriage? Study the gospel. I tell people all the time, the reason why marriage is hard is because Adam sinned. And you too repeat the sin of Adam. And you are two sinners who have decided to live together and, and work through these things. That's the reason why marriage is difficult. And when, when Adam sinned against God, not only was God's relationship with man broken, but so was man's relationship with one another. So we need to be made right with God. We need to be moving toward maturity in Christ so that our relationships can improve. Don't you see that? See how the gospel is the answer to everything. You want parenting advice? Look to the gospel. Having difficulty with your kids at a young age? Give them gospel from an early age and give it to them and give it to them and give it to them and pray for them daily in hopes that they'll come to saving faith at a young age. The gospel is the answer for everything. That's why Paul said... All I'm going to give you is gospel because that's all you need. You need gospel. You need Christ and Him crucified. So whatever we do, we need to make sure we keep the gospel center stage in our life. We need to continually center our attention toward it because without it, 
growth in godliness and being like Christ will not be possible. Maybe you're here this morning and your priorities are out of whack. We all get that way at times, don't we? You've centered your life. You, you have not centered your life upon Christ and, and, and the cross, but on secondary things. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I would rather talk about and read about the goings-on in Washington or what's happening in the world of sports rather than the gospel. You know what? Sometimes what we want is not what we need most, right? Parents with kids, if your child is sick, they may think a cookie will make them feel better. But you know better, don't you? You know what they need most is a dose of medicine. That doesn't always appeal to them. But if you love that child, you will give he or she what they need most, not what they most want. And the same is true of us. When we speak to people about Christ, though people may want to hear other things other than the cross, what people need most is Jesus and the message of the cross. It's the answer to everything. Third way to be a fool for Christ is to be dependent and humble, not self-confident and arrogant. Paul says in verse 3 through verse 5, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Once again, Paul places himself in contrast to these admired speakers in Corinth. While these philosophers and and teachers and leaders, when they went before the people of Corinth, they went with, with swagger and confidence, and they could captivate an audience with their oratory skills, with their, with their speaking ability. Paul says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, we don't often think about Paul in this way, do we? We don't. We think of him as being this great, confident, fearless, mighty, impressive powerhouse for God. But the scriptures at times, they say otherwise. 2 Corinthians 10.10, we learn that some said of Paul, his letters, though they're weighty and strong, his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Other early history books affirm that, that Paul was also not much to look at. A second century writing described Paul as a man who is small in size, with meeting eyebrows, so he had a unibrow, and a rather large nose, bald-headed and bow-legged. Poor guy. I'm not lying. This was the description given of Paul by the early church. Not a very attractive guy, right? Another point that's made about Paul in Scripture is, is at times, though he was well-educated, and as educated and and as intelligent as any when it came to the scriptures, he at times had issues communicating his message. There were times when when they just didn't understand where Paul was coming from. 
Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, there are some things that Paul says that are hard to understand. That's what Peter says. There's other times Paul's talking, and I don't know where, what he's getting at. So not only was Paul not much to look at, at times he had a difficult time getting his point across. In Acts chapter 20, we're told of a man who falls asleep during one of Paul's lengthy sermons, and he falls out the window to his death. I mean, how many pastors can say that their sermon was so long that someone it actually killed somebody? Now, Paul ends on a good note. He goes and he raises the guy back to life, but still. Now, people get uncomfortable talking about Paul in this way. Oh, we've got to be careful, you know. Uh, talking about him in this way as being unattractive and long-winded and difficult to understand and and at times weak and and timid speaker and leader. But this is the information that's given to us from the Word of God. You know what else? Paul doesn't shy away from this description about himself, does he? And the reason why is because he was not concerned with his outward appearances and his reputation as a public speaker. He wasn't. Those things, they didn't concern Paul. His focus was upon getting the gospel right and presenting that message to others. Paul didn't resort to all sorts of of gimmicks to try to win the Corinthians to Christ. He didn't try to impress them with the way he looked or with big words. Believers, that's a great message for us today, isn't it? Paul's message to us is, you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a gifted speaker. You don't have to look impressive and have good-looking facial features to be an effective witness and representative from God. You don't have to always come across cool, calm, and collected, and confident, and, and captivate people with your speaking abilities. Two things you need that Paul had. You need the empowering of the Spirit of God. And you need to get the gospel right and effectively communicate that message to others and then let God do what God does. Paul says in verses 4 and 5, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul makes the point here, hey, it's good that my message is unspectacular. It's good that this message is not stunning and clever and entertaining and theatrical. Why? Once again, because Paul knew that if they're drawn to him for these reasons, they're in trouble. Because in and of himself, he doesn't have the, the, the ability to save. He knows lofty speech and human wisdom and entertaining theatrics, it does nothing for us. God is the only one who can save. And he does so when his message is effectively communicated to others. So Paul simply sticks to the message of the gospel so that people will be drawn to God rather than himself. Listen, it's so important that the message I preach Sunday after Sunday 
directs people to Christ. Because if people are drawn to me, we're in trouble. Because I don't have the power to save. I simply know the, the one and the message that does. And I can honestly tell you more than anything else, what I want to see happen Sunday after Sunday is not for people to ultimately get excited about what takes place up here on stage, but for people to get excited about the God we serve. More than anything else, what I want and what I know our worship leaders want is not for people to just say, what wonderful music or what a wonderful message, but to say, what a wonderful Savior. What an awesome God we serve. How great is our God? That's what I want people to leave here week in and week out saying. That's my prayer for you, and that's what I believe that God wants as well. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're looking over these points, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I line up perfectly with the second half of each of these points. I mean, the second half of each of these describes me to a T. You're thinking to yourself, up to this point in my life, I put all my eggs into the basket of human wisdom. I have rejected God's message and I have gone at life on my own. Maybe you're here this morning and you put all of your efforts into secondary things. Your interest in what you give yourself to on a daily basis are solely the things of this world. Maybe you're here this morning and up to this point in your life, you have seen your need of, of no one or nothing but yourself. Listen, God calls for us to go at life differently. He does. He calls for us to go a different way in His world. He calls for us to abandon earthly wisdom and embrace His message. He calls for us to put first things first by focusing our attention on Christ and His gospel. And He calls for us to humble ourselves, see our need of Him, and place our faith and trust in Christ alone. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let Him return to the Lord. I invite you today, if you have not, to return to God by placing your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.